0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host James Huang. I'm Dave Rome. I'm Zach
1: Edwards. I'm Ron Burgundy. Oh,
0: we have a, we have a new guest host
1: on the show today. Apparently, <laughs> I'm Kaylee Fritz. I'm here as usual to I don't know provide very little insight, but some bad jokes.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, we are actually recording today's show on election day here in the U.S. and while all of dust has hopefully settled by the time you hear this, hopefully everyone listening cast their ballot and made their voice heard, because as a friend's mother once said to me a very long time ago, "If you don't make a decision, one will be made for you, and you may not like it. Correct. Whichever team yeah, Whichever team you're on, and by that, I of course mean hashtag Team tubeless or hashtag Team Tube inside." We also hope today's show provides a little bit of distraction for you and escape from the real world. And we do have yet another great show for you today, focusing this time on sustainability and consumption in the bike industry. We'll talk about some rather outrageously expensive new winter gear from Asos, a new green packaging initiative from Trek. We'll chat with a Dutch author on his new book on how the bike industry can shift from a linear to a circular business model. And finally, as is fast-becoming tradition for us here on Nerd Alert, we'll wrap up with a round of Ask a Mechanic, where we take a whole bunch of reader-submitted questions on bike maintenance and repair, and we will do our best to give you sensible answers, mostly by muting Kaylee's mic. Chain Lake is fine. (laughs) All right. First and foremost, let's catch up with the crew. How is everyone doing this week?
1: Uh, We just took a brief pause in our preparations for the Civil War to... (laughs) Join this podcast <laughs> and distract ourselves a little bit. Uh, I'm already out of sandbags, which is a real problem.
0: Well, and, and I will say that you know Zach's shop does already have bars on the window so that's I mean true. you're sort of preparing to go it, right? safety. <laughs> yeah, got a got a bunch of sharp tools in the toolbox. <laughs> yep, <laughs> ready to
1: go.
2: And and Dave, I think are you actually allowed to go anywhere at the moment? Yeah, we're 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 free. We're completely free. Oh, how about, oh that's as right. Long as, as long as we don't go over the border, we're completely free. Well, which border? The 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 country border or the state border? The state border. So, yeah. yeah, we're allowed to travel within the state quite freely. Um I sat in a cafe this morning.
1: Ooh. What? Yeah. That sounds fun. Mm. Uh we we probably should have gotten Ronan on this episode.
0: You know, I thought about that. The only issue with Ronan is that especially with the time change right now, he is 8 hours ahead, so it is currently almost midnight for him. Rough. So I think uh well i am i was going to mention ronan in in the episode in just a minute
1: well for our our listeners out there we have a new tech writer ronan mclaughlin he's awesome he stole the everesting record from alberto contador and he's gonna be writing for us in fact he's a longtime listener of nerd alert and the segment tips podcast so he'll probably hear us talking about him on this very podcast and then next week Maybe he'll be on. We'll just
0: He'll be on the podcast, which is going to be maybe a little bit weird for him. A little bit but weird. But that, that's okay, because it maybe is a little bit weird for him also seeing his picture in the little author bio on the page. Uh, because, you know, he, he just started with us last Monday, and we have wasted pretty little time in putting our new tech writer to work. So, I mean, I think we may as well just jump right into the news here, because the first thing I want to talk about is actually something that Ronan wrote. Um, so, we do have... A new winter collection from Assos. Cue the, cue the, the
1: angels and the The know, sound the singing. of money falling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I believe that, that, that is
1: what sort that's Sort of a said. big thump. Just, just the little, the, what's the, um, like Super Mario with the coins. That's the yeah, sound. Yeah, we need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Just that noise every time we talk about it.
2: I actually think with Assos, you, you can't use coins. You need the cash. <laughs> <laughs> it's gotta be paper money. <laughs>
0: anyway, one of the news pieces, yes, that Ronan put together, is about this new winter collection from Asos, which is capped by the. I'm not really sure how to how to say this or pronounce this. It's the the
1: Joda jacket, the J O H D A H. I mean, I, Joda I sounds mean, good. I'm not really sounds sure. Sounds right. They get Honestly, name. that's pretty normal by Asos standards on the naming front. It
0: is very normal. It is very normal. But anyway, Asos builds a thing with. You know, supposedly a whole bunch of different fabrics and fabric weights. It's supposedly windproof and at least water resistant. You know, there's even some goofy, you know, they call them diffuser valves in the shoulders, which are basically just openings in the shoulder, which I would also Vince. presume let water in. Um, <laughs> and diffuser you know, they're supposed to on. regulate core temperature. But far and away, I would say the most eye-popping feature about this thing is the fact that it costs... 725 US dollars, which also uh, exchanges to 1,000 Australian dollars, which is a good thing that no one's going to buy this in Australia, because it doesn't really get that cold there anyway. Uh, someone will buy it. As- someone <laughs> in, in, people invariably will buy it, no question, but ASOS nevertheless is defending the cost of this thing, saying that quote, the notion of affordability is relative. If you demand a winter outfit that allows you to push hard during the harshest conditions, then you will need to invest in a product that has no compromises, unquote. I'm no stranger to expensive technical clothing, but this seems
2: over the top. I never thought shake dry would look like good value. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if you have
3: that kind of disposable income to buy a $725 jacket... Just travel to somewhere warmer. (laughs) You can afford the plane ticket. (laughs) That's
1: very true. Both ways, in fact. I'm here to defend the Asos $725 jacket. And and less defending the actual item. And more the fact that if you have the disposable, disposable income to buy a $725 jacket, then you don't really care that it's $725. Like, that's just kind of, you know, you're just in this space where it doesn't, really fully matter. And to also defend it, it's probably really good, right? We've all ridden in ASOS stuff. It's probably genuinely an excellent jacket. I'm not saying it's better than a $300 jacket, but if you can afford a $725 jacket and you want it, go for it. Enjoy it. It's probably really nice.
3: Can I so I only saw the headline. I've not actually read about this jacket. Is it typical ASOS and white? Because a white seven hundred dollar winter jacket seems pretty cool. Just like the no, first actually, ride, you get some road spray on it and stain <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> no, it it is actually only available in black with a couple like little blue like color pops oh, on the shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't great yeah, for visibility. Yeah. No, that that was one of Ronan's criticisms of it. Um, and it, it, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I guess if you can afford a seven hundred twenty five dollar jacket, you can afford to put some extra lights on your bike i mean Kelly. i mean yeah i mean i guess i'm with you in the sense that yes for people who have that kind of disposable money sure have at it but i i guess the thing for me is if i had that level of disposable income and usually the things that are outlandishly expensive are pretty obviously outlandishly expensive in the sense that people seeing it could tell right away that it was outlandishly expensive the thing is though ASOS makes a bunch of other stuff that is you know less outrageously expensive so like I'm not really sure anyone who sees someone riding this jacket would say to themselves like, "Oh, this is a super expensive jacket," as opposed to just some other you know kind of more reasonable
2: Asos jacket. Yeah, I never thought I'd see the day when like a uh, shake dry a jacket made of shake dry looks affordable. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's I guess you've got Asos to give that relativity in uh, in pricing. Um, my my issue with this jacket is that it just it raises that price perception and the benchmark for what someone can charge for a jacket and then that just like it doesn't mean the rest of the industry will follow but it gives the room for the rest of the industry to follow and prices just you know will continue to track upward while brands are coming out with these crazy expensive products saying that there is a market out there for it
1: yeah i mean three uh, that's true like 300 bucks was was kind of the upper limit a couple years ago and now there's lots of 300 dollars jackets so there is something to that and we don't necessarily like that aspect of it but
0: yeah and and back to the shake dry thing i know you know when that stuff first came out you know pretty much anyone who had not used it yet was like oh my god this is total highway robbery like how can you charge this much for you know a windbreaker or rain jacket or whatever and then as more people started using it everyone was like holy crap this stuff is absolutely amazing and you know I just don't really see that happening with this thing, but I mean, I don't know. It's not like I haven't been wrong before. So, I mean, I guess we'll see, but
1: can, can I also just say that I just don't like jackets like this?
0: I, yeah. I don't like the, the lack of flexibility. Cause I like being, I mean, granted we, we are, I mean, Kaylee and Zach and I are here in Boulder. So we are constantly dealing with huge, huge swings in in weather, and even on the same ride. Um, so it's really important for us to be able to, to, Be able to accommodate a bunch of different conditions with you know a single set of garments that you're that you're wearing at any given time. That's what the valves are for. Yeah, yeah, the diffuser (laughs) valves. Yeah, the otherwise no. I mean, I don't know. Is there like a
2: an an additional thing that you can stick in there for like a like a ramjet engine or something? Yeah, I was I was hoping that maybe it's like a has like a turbo release. As (laughs) as it breathes. like a. Oh, that'd be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Sound effects.
1: yeah but like i grew up in vermont which is a, just so cold and so miserable all the time and like it's just it's very rarely to the point where i want to wear something that heavy yeah, honestly it's just all about just, layers just Put more layers on versus one big layer and granted they're, they're positioning this thing as a layerable item but when you look at it it doesn't necessarily look like that to me so a, a personal opinion here i just don't like big thermal jackets i have never liked them I really, none of them really breathe well enough to give me the versatility that I want. Because even if you're not dealing with changing temperatures like we are, maybe you're dealing with going uphill and downhill, which is a massive difference in in effective temperature, right? So I'm just not. It would need to be, you know, below freezing for me to have any interest in riding in this thing, and at that, that well point, well below I'm skiing, freezing. I might add, like well below yeah. freezing. Yeah, but you know, other people
0: ride when it's like that. And even then, you know, back to that breathability thing, that shake dry stuff is so good that if I wear a pretty good insulating mid layer underneath that jacket, I can ride when it's pretty damn cold outside and I am not overheating or
2: getting wet inside. Yeah. True. But going back to Kaylee's point, um ASOS does have a history of making ridiculously nice stuff, so I am actually kinda keen to hear how this how this thing performs. I mean true. we're right, we're kinda riding it yeah, off at the well, moment, and, but um I'm 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 keen to hear true. how a seven hundred and twenty-five dollar jacket performs and whether it's four hundred dollars better than a than a cheap dry jacket. That's hilarious. The the last sort
1: of thicker Asos jacket that I had, and I can't remember what it's called. It was, this is like five or six years ago, I was testing it for Velonews. It was genuinely the nicest of that type of clothing that I have ever used, bar none. And I'm gonna guess that this is probably similar. But it's still seven hundred twenty-five dollars, and I still don't it like. The, I don't be. like the entire genre. Is the problem? It's not really Asus's yeah. fault.
3: Still, vote. Buy a plane well, ticket. Go somewhere warm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, as Kaylee said, if you have that kind of disposable income, you probably can buy the jacket and the plane tickets True. in yeah. first class to go wherever you want. Um, but that all said, I mean, our new tech writer Ronan, he is located in Northern Ireland, and they do have legit winter there, so. We may look into bringing in one of those for him and, you know, who knows, maybe we will actually find out how good it is. In other apparel news, Rafa announced a new cycling mid-layer called the, well, it's kind of an outer layer sort of, but they're calling it the Windproof Explorer Pullover, otherwise known as a sweater or a jumper. Uh it's made of Polartech power grid fleece. There's a bit of windproofing material over the shoulders and the front of the arms. It's an awful lot more attainable than that Asolo's jacket. It's only uh 165 US, 210 Australian. Basically free. And yeah, it look it looks like a sweater. It looks like a sweater. It's a sweater. Uh, you know, zippers are really expensive. We we've, we've all been riding bikes for a long time here on Nerd Alert and yeah, I think it's safe to say that we are used to seeing all sorts of kind of technical functions built into cycling apparel, like almost to the point where cycling clothing can be viewed more as equipment. Uh, but this very clearly isn't that, uh, at least in terms of, of appearances. And you know, I'm kind of wondering, like, is this a bid by Rafa to gain more of a casual market? Or is this where we think cycling apparel is heading?
1: I I think this is where cycling apparel is heading. Well, I think it's both, first and foremost. But I I really do believe that sort of the increased popularity, and Ronan mentioned this in his story, the increased popularity of things like handlebar bags, frame bags, basically ways to carry your stuff that are not your back pockets means that we can basically start riding in stuff that looks a lot more normal. And if you're also not all that concerned with things like aerodynamics, then you don't need the sort of super aggressive cut you know, the 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 cut where you stand up off your bike and all of a sudden everyone can see your belly button, that, that fantastic cut, like that's great if you want to go really fast, but if you don't want to go really fast, which I think pretty much everyone on this podcast is kind of in that space at this point, it's just not really necessary. You know, like we've been riding in t-shirts on mountain bikes for a long time. That sort of is making its way into the gravel world. At least here in Boulder, it's making its way into the road world. All the college kids are rolling around in basically bib shorts and t-shirts. That's kind of the thing. I won't. Thank you, Taylor Finney. Yeah, they're doing the Taylor Finney. Yeah. I I won't use the term in case there are small children watching, but there's a term for it. And <laughs> James is making a face. I explained this in the, in the Velo Club Slack. So if you want to know what I'm talking about, you have to join Velo Club. Sorry. And go search for it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... I do. I think this is genuinely sort of where a lot of cycling is going. Not not all of cycling, you know, like the sort of traditional kit still definitely has its place. That's what I went out in today when I went on my lunch ride. But I'm totally okay with a piece of clothing that is less, quote-unquote, functional. Doesn't have as many zippers and pockets and things like that. That I could also ride in. Because I'll just stick the stuff that I have in my handlebar bag. And it's always kind of driven me nuts that when companies tried to do these, like, hybrid casual performance gear It it always had the weird cycling pocket and that meant that i never wanted to wear it casually ever right because i don't want to wander around like when i'm off my bike with pockets on my back you just look like an idiot so i'm i'm glad they sort of just embraced it where
2: do you where do you put your banana
3: those go going near the pocket on your shorts. Yeah. That's what's cool now. Uh, <laughs> you can't have pockets gotcha, on your back, gotcha, but gotcha. pockets on your shorts.
0: The <laughs> sp- your, so much your, your gravel gravel shorts. Yeah, the spandex pocket. Another, your, your gravel cargo another shorts. Another
1: fantastic innovation, honestly. Like, why do we only, ha- only have to have pockets on our backs? I mean, here, Short like, are talking
3: about jackets, like, around here in the winter, we go up a climb, and then we come down. And you get really hot going up, and then you get really cold going down. So a lot of people just carry, like, a non-cycling brand winter puffy jacket and their handlebar bag and put it on at the top
1: yeah like a full-on down jacket and you just wear that on the way down that's what the handlebar does work for. well yeah well
0: i am certainly curious to see where this is going like you said kelly I mean, it does seem like things are going in that direction and have been already um this is really going to raise and, the hackles of like the pure roadies and you know what i'm okay with that because you know there, there are all these kind of like you know rules and whatnot that surround road cycling far more so than mountain biking or gravel or whatever and I'd be perfectly okay if those rules just went away because you know people should just be able to ride their bike and do whatever the hell they want. And if you are not messing with someone else who's riding their bike, then have at it.
1: Yeah,
3: I mean we yep. we wear it all. Like sometimes we go out for a ride and we're wearing t-shirts and baggies, but other times we go out and we're full racer bro, ready to be
1: arrow. Yeah, I was full racer bro today. White socks, Ooh. white shoes, velocio Whoa. kit, cap. Just so. Had the whole thing going. Yeah. White shorts. White no. shorts.
3: But then <laughs> tomorrow we'll go ride in a t shirt because why not? Because why not ride in a t shirt?
0: Better, better question. Do you coordinate beforehand? like Are
1: you like two of us? Usually
3: we're like, this is the route that we're doing and that kind of sets the tone of what the apparel is. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Do
2: you ever get it wrong? There's like one ever rock up in like full Lycra and one of you is like a just full Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah.
3: I mean, yesterday like, Kaylee showed tall. up with short sleeves
1: and leg warmers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's because well, my legs we, are really white and establish- hairy at the moment. And so I did not want to put anything through having to look at them for that long. We we did just establish that there is no wrong here. Yeah. So yeah.
0: let's just not say that Kaylee was dressed incorrectly yesterday. <laughs> let's just say he didn't look good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I look
1: confused.
2: <laughs> we'll
0: put it's it that really way. <laughs> So anyway, one comment that someone left on the Rafa article on cycling tips mentioned how they'd like to at least see the bicycle apparel company start using more sustainable materials instead of virgin plastics that are typically used in fleece and that sort of thing. Uh, For the record, Polartec does make a version of that power grid uh, insulating material that Rafa is using in a 50% recycled version. Um, We... I don't know that Rafa is actually using that, but it does exist. Um, and we are seeing at least some movement on that whole sustainability front as as far as the cycling industry goes overall. Pretty recently, Trek announced that it had quietly switched up the packaging on its most popular Marlin Uh, entry-level mountain bike and in doing so they got rid of you know most uh, not all of the plastics that were used formerly, and they replaced it with corrugated cardboard which is far easier to recycle or like if it goes into a landfill it basically just melts into mush Um, but according to Trek this move on just this one bike model has saved 50,000 pounds or about 27,000 kilos of plastic from landfills. And the company plans to expand the program to uh, to more flat bar bikes in the very near future. Uh, it's already apparently working on new packaging for all of its road bikes. And the master plan is to have all of its packaging company-wide move to sustainable materials. So, I mean, I find all this to be really encouraging on the one hand, but also kind of shocking on the other, because while those are pretty big numbers already, we are talking about just a single bike model from one bike brand. And if you extrapolate
2: the numbers even roughly, this is a huge problem here, it seems like. Yeah. So if, uh, just to give a bit of background, because a lot of people wouldn't see how a bike is boxed to a bike shop. Normally, when they, buy a bike they get the bike the shop has already built it and thrown away all the packaging or if you buy a bike consumer direct for example canyon actually do a very good job with using recycled materials they don't use a lot of bubble wrap they use like those reusable um velcro foam pads which are quite cool in a bike shop most bike brands if it's shipped from giant merida um you know any of the major manufacturers uh you get a cardboard box Normally not with recycled materials, uh, and then within that, like every single individual component is protected from each other. So the handlebar is strapped to the frame, and there's bubble wrap around it. There's uh, fat, uh, fat foam tubes covering every tube of the bike. There's plastic zip ties holding everything together. There's plastic hub and axle protectors, and it goes on and on. So I actually just the other day I weighed. Um, uh, I received a carbon bike, mid-range, pretty mass market uh, from Merida. I'm gonna shame them. Um, and I weighed the throwaway plastic that was in the box, and it was uh, 600 grams of plastic that I had to throw away, uh, non-reusable plastics. Um, and then on top of that, you have all the cardboard as well that wasn't, you know, environmentally sourced. So this is a huge problem. This is, you know, yeah, yes. I mean,
1: six hundred grams is not like in itself what it's a little over a pound pound and a half something like that yep. you know out of each box which but, once you extrapolate yeah. it you're like wow that's actually a, that's a ton of weight that's a, that's, that's how you end one up on bike yeah that's one how you bike. end up at that fifty thousand pounds that trek is talking yep. about but it's also just a lot of volume too right because these are yes. they're, they're 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 low density plastics and they just take up a huge amount of space and they float yeah. in oceans and things like that like we yeah. know how bad this stuff is And the fact there's that much of it in
2: every single one of these bikes that's shipping
1: is not yep. not great
2: yep there is uh, just on James's point there is definitely a movement here so Cannondale for whatever reason they they decided not to announce this uh, in in our markets but in Europe it has been announced that Cannondale Europe has moved to 100% recyclable materials in their in their European box bikes uh, so I think it's uh, it's all their hybrids all their e-bikes and uh, it's designed to greatly reduce waste there's zero plastic, unlike that Trek, which still has a few plastic pieces. Uh, and it's also designed to, for easier assembly. So they're kind of following a bit in the Canyon footsteps, but for dealers. So it'll be quicker bike assembly, less waste, all reusable stuff. Um, and I think their plan for, for Cannondale's plan is to eventually bring that to market across globally for all brands as well. So there's, you know, there's Trek doing it, there's Cannondale doing it. So I think, you know, the writing is on the wall that, that things are changing.
0: Yeah. And there, and you know, Dave, you wrote an article quite a while ago about some smaller brands that were doing this as well. Um, there's a brand called Bjorn. Um, there's also another company based here in the U S called Vast, uh, that, you know, they're doing their magnesium bikes, but, you know, I forgot to take a picture of it, unfortunately, when I built this test bike ages ago, but you know, all of their packaging except for like one or two tiny little pieces, I think it's all corrugated cardboard And, and it definitely takes some extra creativity in doing this. Um, but I mean, it, it can be done like, you know, Ceres, for example, is another company that I noted does a really good job of this. All of their trainers are packaged in hundred percent corrugated cardboard. And like, including that, that massive, what is it? That MP one infinity rocker platform thing that I tested a while ago, that thing is huge and heavy and really expensive. It's basically, you know, as big of like a, as, the box is as big as a, a big screen, flat screen TV. And you know, that thing is all packaged in corrugated cardboard. And Impressive. Yeah, and like the thing arrived intact, and it's well done. There's no plastic anywhere, and like it, it can be done. It just takes a little bit of effort. Um, yeah. But I mean, I don't want to be all doom and gloom about all this because I mean, it it does. I mean, there's no point in talking about something like this if we can't do something about it. But um, you know, I had a conversation with this Dutch author Eric Brunsvoort uh, a couple of days ago, who he co-wrote a book on the topic called "From Marginal Gains to a Circular Revolution." Uh, where he talks in detail about the scope of the problem, kind of how we got to this point, and, and more importantly, what we do about it. So um, before we talk about this some more, let's play that interview, and then we'll discuss it on the other side. Well, Eric, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today on Nerd Alert. I'm pretty excited to, to talk about this book that you published a, uh, just a few months ago, really, um, because there's a lot of information on uh, in here that I think is worthy of unpacking. Um, the first thing I want to ask you is, when you say in the book that, that the bicycle industry is a linear economy, what exactly do you mean by that?
4: A linear economy is um, very much like any other economic system that we're operating in the, in the world today for any other products than bicycles as well. And it's, a, it's an economy, economic system where we take resources from the earth, we turn it into a product, uh, we use it for a short while, and then the product is discarded and ends up as waste. So basically we take a line from Earth, materials from the Earth, all the way to wasting the material. And they don't flow back into the sort of economic system to reuse these products again. Um, And this economic system uh, um, is based on the idea to sell as many products and sell them as fast as possible. And since we're having a, a small planet with limited resources, all the pollution that's caused by this production system and the waste it ends up with, this is not really a sustainable solution, so that's uh, and that's why we wrote this book to try to change that.
0: Do you have a sense as to, to the scale of the problem that we're talking about here? I mean, how, how bad is the bike industry? I guess overall, in terms of you know, sort of just general industry. Because generally speaking, of course, I mean, I think a lot of people who ride bikes either for you know, either just transportation or even as a hobby or sport. I mean, people like to think of bicycling as a like an eco friendly activity, um, but you know. I, when you think about it, certainly the production of those bicycles. And like as you said, most consumer goods is not necessarily earth friendly at all. So what what is the scope of the problem as far as bicycles are concerned?
4: Well, you're right to say that I think the bicycle is a, is a great alternative for, for example, the car, if you use it for commuting. But if it's a sports type of equipment, uh, we don't pay too much attention about which materials we use and how long we use them and what we do with these materials afterwards. Yeah, this is causing the, uh, the, the problem of the limited resource and the pollution that we talked about earlier is it a is it a big problem well i don't think the cycling industry is using up uh, a huge percentage of the resource that we use on this planet but still um well if i look in in, in my shed and if i look in your shed from this uh, video call um we do uh, seem to use quite a lot of materials for quite a short period and the beauty of cycling is that we're very good at yeah finding out all these ways to uh, make materials uh, lighter uh, stiffer And that means that we're using very high-end materials, which are limitedly available or require a lot of energy to produce. So compared to a lot of other industries, the cycling industry is fairly small, but we do use a lot of the valuable and high-tech materials, which cause more pollution than others.
0: Are there certain types of bicycles or materials that are worse than others?
4: Well, they all have their their pros and their cons, uh, at least the materials that you see on the bike today. So you've got steel, uh, which is usually quite a high-grade steel and it's got this um, this um, image that steel is recyclable so it's a good thing. But if you think about what happens with these bicycles uh, once you discard them, they probably end up with lower-grade metals uh, in the recycling process and they kind of get lost forever because they're mixed with these lower-grade materials. Uh, plus it costs a lot of energy to melt steel and make new steel out of it. So it's a good Material because it lasts quite long, but the recycling process isn't as, well, as fancy as a lot of people seem to uh, want us to believe. And then if you look at carbon fibre, uh, making carbon fibre is probably as energy-intensive as it is to make steel or aluminium, uh, but doesn't um, have the opportunity to be recycled properly in a way, for example, steel can be made into new steel again. So the only real way to get rid of uh, carbon fibre at the moment economically is to burn it in a very hot oven used for uh, cement or steel production. Um, and then it's just basically fuel for making other products. Um, but the good thing about carbon fiber is it's quite easy to repair. So if you damage your carbon fiber frame, uh, it's possible to repair it and uh, yeah, extend the lifetime of the carbon fiber.
0: What about alternative metals like aluminum and titanium and uh, now magnesium?
4: I'm not sure about magnesium, but uh, aluminum is, is very good to recycle. Um, but just like steel, it costs a lot of energy uh, to produce an aluminium frame. Um, and yeah, we, uh, we used a study by Specialized that had a look into how much energy actually is required to make an aluminium frame. And we found that it is the same amount of kilowatt hours that an average Dutch family uses in half a year to feed all the appliances in their house. Just for right, one for kilogram one frame. of aluminium, yeah. Or to, to make one kilogram of aluminum, okay. An Al- aluminum frame. So at first okay. you have to get it out of the earth and then you uh, make aluminum from the stuff that gets out of the earth. And then you, yeah, molder, modify it into a frame set. And when you combine all these energy inputs, it leads to about 1600 kilowatt hours, which is quite a lot.
0: I mean, it, that's quite a striking figure, especially when you also think that, you know, right now uh, we're only talking about the frame materials, uh, let alone. You know, as far as the the whole bike is concerned, I mean, the frame is a relatively small amount of the total weight of the bike. So there are all these other, you know, wheels and components, you know, rubbers, plastics, that sort of thing. And um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, those are all primarily, you know, kind of mixed materials that are very difficult to recycle, even if you wanted to.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Consider um, recycling a aluminum crank arm with a carbon fiber wrap. It's impossible to get the carbon fiber wrap off. So that will have to be burned in a furnace before you get even you even get to the metal to recycle it. But the same goes for, and what you said is right, um, the frame material is, is only about like a kilogram of an eight kilogram bike, um, and it's probably the item that lasts longest. So if you look at sustainability in the bicycle, uh, we often get asked which bike should I buy, a steel bike or a carbon fiber bike? Uh, that doesn't really matter too much because you can use that for a long time, but if you look at where the wear is and what sort of the items are that you regularly uh, throw in the bin. It's probably chains, cassettes, chain rings. um, And these weigh quite a lot as well compared to a frame set. So over the the lifetime of a frame, you could easily replace like 10 cassettes. And the interesting question is how many of the uh, chain rings on the cassette are actually worn when you have to replace them? So you're you're wasting not just sort of the, the ecological uh, input that had to go into these uh, items to make them, but you 're also wasting money of stuff that you bought but never used
0: uh, that's one of the things that we that we complain about quite a lot uh you know either on the site or on the podcast, just in the sense that you know we do have you know all these consumable items on bicycles, and you know while obviously yes, there is an environmental aspect to how a lot of this stuff is kind of disposable now. Um, I mean, there is also just a very kind of, you know, sort of practical standpoint uh, in, in the sense that a lot of the stuff that we are replacing, it, it does, doesn't, doesn't seem like it's meant to last very long or, you know, if we do have to replace it, it can be difficult to find a replacement part or, you know, with, with how quickly things are changing, you know, it, it could be almost impossible to find a replacement part for something that's really not very old. Um, I mean, in your viewpoint, I mean, how did we get to this point or has it always been this way?
4: I don't think it has been this way for, for a long time. Um, only about the 1990s, when mass production of bicycles started to happen, uh, did we make this shift from sort of the more um, bespoke bicycle to the mass produced bicycle. Um, in the past, you would go to a bike shop, you would uh, select a frame that you liked, and you would select a group set, and then the, the local bike shop would make that into a bike. Um, and if they needed parts that were not on, uh, on their shop, they would order the parts to make that into the bike. Then when mass production started and production started to move to, to Asia, um, all of a sudden these bike brands had to make a new uh, way of making money uh, by ordering a number of bicycles up front and then try to sell them to the market, even though the market was not there yet, there was not a customer asking for all these bicycles. So marketing started to play a very important role in making your bike the most attractive bike to buy and then uh, seduce customers not to go for this sort of more bespoke bicycle, but to buy this mass product. And this is leading to a red race, which is very similar to other uh, industries in this linear economic system. And that is what's leading to what we found, um, three negative design principles that are currently very common in the cycling industry. That, people, uh, that parts are designed to fill, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah? So you, you can easily uh, increase the lifetime of a saddle, for example, by adding a few grams, um, as opposed to what's happening now with a lot of saddles that they break in the middle after a few years. Um, parts are designed to be outdated, so backwards compatibility is gone and parts are only in stock for like five years. So if you break a part after five years, it's very hard to find a replacement part that will actually work with, um, with, with your bike. And the third and most important thing maybe is even uh, that parts are designed to be outfashioned. So even though the bike is, is good enough to ride for a few more years, um, your buddy shows up with the latest technology, and the magazine tells you that this is the fastest, lightest, stiffest bike ever on the planet, and you just need this bike in order to be able to, uh, to be able to join your buddies. Um, and all these, these tiny steps are required to sort of make your bike uh, stand out of the crowd. And it leads to a lot of small marginal gains. And um, yeah, the the compatibility thing is really an issue and has become an issue more than before. I mean, looking
0: back, I mean, quite a while ago, um, I mean, let's see, this would have been almost 20 years ago now, I think. Um, I mean, there there was a road bike that I had that, I mean, ultimately I decided was the wrong size, so I sold it. Um, But it was this old Le Monde uh, steel and carbon bike that I absolutely loved. And a few years ago, uh, I actually managed to find a used frame set in that model uh, same same year, but in the correct size this time. Um, and I ended up buying it for just a few hundred dollars and I put a modern group set on it and more modern wheels and you know I actually wrote an article about this whole about this whole process because uh, because what was really interesting to me was how this bike was quite old, again, like you know almost 20 years old or something at the, well, the frame anyway was almost 20 years old. And while there certainly were differences between that bike and what I could get currently today, I mean, ultimately they really were not that different. I mean, it certainly, it seems like, you know, on the, at least for road bikes, anyway, that, you know, road bikes have evolved so thoroughly that, you know, like you said, I mean, there are, there have been certainly these, these smaller gains in recent years, but they really have not changed appreciably in the last couple decades. I mean, I would say at least it seems to me anyway, that you know, save for maybe the advent of disc brakes, I mean, it it seems that road bike evolution has kind of topped out for, and, and been that way for a long time now. So, you know, bike companies have not been very good, however, at bringing in new people to cycling. I mean, the bike industry always talks about, you know, growing the pie, bringing in new people, and, like, you know, getting more people into cycling. But it always seems like, you know, in it because they have not done a very good job of doing that, what they always end up doing is, as you say, trying to come up with these smaller gains to entice people to buy new bikes, but they really are just selling new bikes to the same people. Um, so given given the reality of that sort of situation, um, I mean, it, it does to me, like certainly from a sustainability standpoint, it makes sense that we would want to go back to this model where we would, like, as you said, and I think you call it a platform in your book, um, you know, invest in a, a frame that, that, that you, that you like that rides well, that fits you well, that you, that you know that you'll want to continue riding for a long time. And then, you know, the rest of the stuff that's on the bike, I mean, that is, that is more consumable, that stuff, that stuff, you know, will wear out, you know, that, that part is kind of a given, but it seems like if we return to this model of you know, prioritizing the purchase of things that are more durable and will last a long time instead of things that are just lighter and stiffer and more aerodynamic that you know, seemingly we could maybe get back to where things were. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I guess you're right. Um, so when we started this adventure into what is sustainability in the cycling industry about four years ago, um, we found that from about 2005 onwards, road bikes were like really good. They wouldn't feel uh, under normal conditions anymore and the uh, geometry hasn't changed too much, and if you fit a nice comfy set of 25 mil tires and a new groupset, new handlebar, compact handlebar on these bikes, they look quite new, they feel quite new, and especially if you use sort of the higher-end models from these days. Uh, they're performing way better than a lot of the lower-end and mid-end bikes on the market today. Um, and what we also found is that if you want to change this sort of linear model into what we call a circular economic model, We have to make sure that uh, parts will sort of flow from a manufacturer to a user and back to a manufacturer. Without needing new finite resources, uh, without causing waste and without causing pollution on the way. And to make that happen, I think four what we call circular design principles are required. Uh, And the first one is to make sure that parts will last forever. I remember I bought a Chris King uh, headset for my mountain bike in the yeah, probably late 90s, and it outlasted three of my bikes. I liked the part so much, I took it uh, out before I sold the bike and bought a new bike. The second one is to design for compatibility, adaptability and upgradability. So make sure that if you design new parts, um, it is compatible backwards. So it can be used on, uh, on older models, but also can be used in the future when the new models are introduced. The third one is to make sure that you can easily maintain and repair your bicycle. So it's quick, it's easy, uh, it's cheap, and the fourth one is to use the right materials. And this is where it's probably the toughest um, because we're so used to using steel, aluminium, titanium, carbon fibre on bikes that we really should use uh, start looking for for other materials which might be or should be non-toxic to start with, but preferably also reused and recycled parts. Um, and ideally, uh, that would become sort of the Part of the circle of life, uh, you use bio-based materials, which somewhere grow somewhere, are made into a frame set, uh, and at the end of the lifetime of a frame set you could dig up a hole in your garden, place your frame set in your garden, and it would be like nutrition for the plants to grow from. Uh, and it's a it's a long-term vision, eh? We're looking at 2050 here, uh, but we think this cycling industry, if it's sort of moving in the right direction, if if the next wave of innovation is no longer Fourteen or fifteen speed, and um, I don't know, uh, more aeroframes, frames. But we really sort of make a change towards a more sustainable cycling industry. This should be really something that could be very exciting in the next few years.
0: I mean, this is something that a lot of enthusiasts already do currently. I mean, there is a lot of pe- there is a lot of appeal, especially to people who have been riding for quite a while, in in exactly the scenario that you were talking about with you know frames that perhaps are a little bit heavier but are going to last longer and you know there's not gonna be as much turnover in and you know that sort of more universal or I guess more widespread parts compatibility and more longevity I mean it's why people are still spending extra money for custom steel and titanium frames with you know threaded fittings and rim brakes and cable actuated parts and that sort of thing I mean, I feel like that element, it, at least to me, it seems like has been growing somewhat in recent years, and I think you know the 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 success of you know various handmade shows worldwide has, has certainly contributed to that. But, and, but overall, in the mainstream, though, it you know the the bigger bicycle companies still do continue to push, you know these these, you know the the idea of steady technological progression that you like, like you said that you always have to have the latest and greatest and. Um, I, Given that sort of environment, though, I mean, while the scenario that you talk about should be what a lot of people should want uh, if if for no other reason than just the fact that it's it's less expensive in the long run um, but given all the the marketing pressure and you know just sort of the 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 advertising and the energy that bicycle companies are putting into the the new latest and greatest stuff, I mean, how do you reconcile those two situations? I mean, how do you make it so that the more sustainable scenario, which ultimately a lot of people would benefit from anyway, is what they actually are sort of, I guess sort of accustomed or trained to want.
4: Yeah. So I think it's got something to do with uh, education. And there's not a lot of people are really sort of uh, top of mind that cycling, uh, cycling is supposed to be sustainable because you're on a bike and you're not polluting and not emitting carbon emissions. Uh, so for a very long time that has been sort of the motto in the cycling industry we're the sustainable alternative so there's no need for us to think about this um, but but it is changing i mean more consumers are becoming conscious of what they're buying and if you go into a, a regular outdoor shop um, there's hardly a jacket out there that doesn't uh, show it's got recycled material in it or bio uh, cotton or whatever so it's already happening very close to the cycling industry in the outdoor industry that there's a lot of the introduction of, of new products, and if you're not have showing a label that you are more sustainable than a normal product, you probably won't even be in the shop anymore, in a, in a good outdoor shop. So, and the same type of customers are in the cycling industry, but because there's not been any like scale, uh, products on scale uh, that you could buy, which are a sustainable alternative to what you would regularly buy, uh, there doesn't seem to be a market, so people don't start to ask for them. And I think that is sort of the point that we need to break. Uh, we need some some companies to start introducing sustainable alternatives to what you would regularly buy, and it will create a new market. Um, and if it's not just for the for the customers willing to buy these type of products, uh, I think in the in the near future government regulation uh, will also help to make uh, less sustainable materials more expensive and alternatives less expensive. Um, we might even run out of resources. So there's reports that saying that, for example, titanium will run out in the next couple of decades. Um, yeah, I think the most important thing why companies should do this is, is, is a really good driver for innovation. And if you're innovating, you need a long-term project to work on, and that is inspiring to your designers, inspiring to the guys that are selling the product on the market. And I think sustainability should be, should be that next sort of big thing for, for by companies to work on.
0: Right, because I guess, you know, drawing on that outdoor industry analogy that you were talking about, I guess Patagonia is the, the prime example there of a company who is still arguably like the coolest outdoor, certainly apparel uh, company out there, or like the most desirable seemingly. Um, and, you know, they have really made a point of of highlighting their, their, their focus on sustainability and, and kind of like eco-conscious design. And their stuff is quite expensive, certainly, um, but it doesn't seem like their stuff has gotten any more expensive because of the efforts that they're putting in. And it does seem like consumers are really starting to grasp onto that idea that not only are they getting something that they want that works well, but they also feel like they're doing something kind of positive in making this purchase, right?
4: And a funny thing is that Patagonia is hardly spending any money on advertisement because people will tell their story for them. It's beautiful.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So they they feel good making the purchase. And then I guess if they feel good about it, they'll tell other people about it. But um, have you talked to any bigger bicycle companies about the some of the, the concepts that you that you put forth in this book as far as, you know, sort of the 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 circular economic model that you talked about and, you know, some of the systems that would have to be put in place to to make this sort of thing happen? Because, you know, I think a lot of people who have been in the industry for a long time can agree. That the bike industry is not so good at cooperating with each other on anything <laughs> yeah. at all, it's certainly not like you know really big uh, endeavors and this sort of change that you're talking about would certainly be a very big endeavor um, so what would be required to actually make this sort of thing happen? I mean it, like does just one big company have to dive in and then hopefully other ones follow suit i mean what what's the um, scenario here? <laughs>
4: I think you need two things to make this transition to this circular cycling industry. And uh, one is a very much a bottom-up uh, movement, where customers start to realize that they too have a an, um, an role to play in maintaining the bikes better, um, keeping stuff um, for a longer period before they buy new stuff, but also asking questions to their local bike shops, to magazines, to, in- to journalists. So really much sort of a bottom-up approach. And the other one is, uh, yeah, it's top down. Um, so ideally, a lot of the industry partners would come together and say, okay, we think this is an important issue uh, and we need to cooperate with each other to make this happen. And I think, well, for example, the UCI as the sort of the, the government in the cycling sport, could play a major role there. Saying, for example, that on the 2028 Olympics, uh, Los Angeles, all of the bikes uh, used by the, by the entrance should be sustainable bicycles. And I don't know what exactly what that should look like, but if you could set a goal, which is sort of mid to long term, uh, and you could get everyone aligned to say, okay, this is where we're going, and you create a level playing field for, uh, for companies. And yeah, everyone will sort of have to start investing in this, uh, in this endeavor and make it happen. Uh, but it's will, it will be very tough uh, looking at sort of the history of this, uh, this cooperation. But at the same time, I think this is an issue that is uh, way beyond the cycling industry. Right? It's, it's it's important for everyone to make this transition to a more sustainable society. And that's also the beauty. It appeals to every single person wherever in your organization, whether you're a financial person or a designer. Um, deep down inside, I think everyone's got this this idea that something needs to change. And it's, it's about making sure that this energy is directed to the right uh, direction. Um, yeah, and, and let's make it happen.
0: Uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was a, a change that is potentially going to happen in twenty fifty. Uh, if I understand correctly, I think I think you and I have talked about this uh, kind of offline a little bit. But but there's there's a change that's that's about to take place in the EU in twenty fifty. The EU's correct? got this
4: long term vision that by twenty fifty we want to be circular. So uh, the EU should not be importing any finite resources anymore. There should not no longer be uh, carbon emissions or net carbon emissions as I say, and we should be able to reuse all our waste into sort of new products. And it's a very long term vision, but it helps to sort of direct all the, um, uh, the regulation towards 2050. And there's a sort of a medium uh, goal in 2030, where they say they want, I think it's like 30 or 40% uh, s- circular which is quite vague still, but uh, at least it shows where, where they want to be going. And also the, the carbon emissions should be reduced by at least 49, maybe 55 percent compared to 1990, which is a is an impressive goal, and it's, it's going to be hard to reach it. So anyone operating in the European Union or selling products to the European Union will start to feel, for example, the carbon tax that will be introduced um, on a wider scale than it is today. So stuff is going to happen.
0: So if nothing else, even if the bike industry itself can't get itself to cooperate kind of proactively on this sort of thing, it sounds like, you know, the EU will basically make them start thinking about it sooner than they maybe would otherwise. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, 30 years is really not that far away. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people would say that's not soon enough, but, but, you know, given the reality of the situation right now and what the options are currently, If someone wanted to buy a new bike right now and wanted to make a more sustainable choice, what advice would you give to them?
4: The first question would be, why do you need a new bike? Um, Second one would be, um, would you be able to find a a very good second-hand bike that you could uh, ride for a few more years? Uh, And the third one is, if you go for a bike, try to spend as much money as you can on a a high-quality bike that will that you love and will yeah, sort of cherish for as many years as possible. So instead of buying sort of a mid-range in the color that you don't really like, but you know it's on sale, I just buy it, oh, it's the wrong size um, kind of thing. It's better to buy one bike and invest for, for a very long time than buying one now and having to buy a new, another one in three years time. And um, so that's when, when you're buying the bike. And the, and the second, I think most important thing is just look after your bikes. Yeah, so maintain them well, clean them well, uh, bring it to the bike shop uh, regularly for uh, for tune-up uh, to make sure that it will last for as long as possible.
0: Sounds like sage advice, not even just on the sustainability aspect, but it's just a smart thing to do anyway. Just you know, make sure that what you're looking at is what you actually will really want and be happy with for a long time and take care of it, right? That seems pretty simple.
4: Yeah, so I used to walk into a bike shop and sort of, see some, something with a sale sign on it and, and think, well, I'll just buy this jacket or this part uh, without even considering whether you need it or not. And sometimes it's very good to sort of postpone your purchase and think about it for another six months and then buy something slightly better that you actually really like instead of something you see on the sales. Um, yeah, it might not be as fashionable, but it's a bit of it like the Patagonia jacket. You, you buy it because you like it, you know it's more expensive, and usually, people buying Patagonia stuff will wear it with pride for many years because it's such a nice jacket to be wearing, um, and the same goes for bicycles.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost a badge of honor that uh, when you're wearing a Patagonia jacket, that's super, super old. Yeah,
4: it is, yeah. And it probably still functions as good as many of the jackets you would buy today for similar, for similar money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Eric, thank you very much for your time. I mean, this is, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I mean, this is something that we, we do intend to dive into a little bit more deeply at Stocking Tips. So uh, I think we're very likely going to have another conversation in the near future. So thanks again for the time. Thanks, James. Look forward to it. So this gradual shift to this disposable bike economy that Eric was talking about, I mean, it's been fairly recent. Um and according to him it's been largely driven by mass production and you know kind of model your over in like this endless quest for these kind of so-called marginal gains because at least in road bikes anyway i mean road bikes have really not changed a whole lot in you know over a decade i'd say i mean yes they have gotten better but by and large if you were buy a really high-end road bike from 10 years ago it's still pretty damn good um and, you know but yet in making all these little improvements, we're also rendering previous models increasingly obsolete. So as a proposed systemic fix for this problem, he has, you know, Eric has come up with this, you know, he's called it this platform model where consumers basically just buy a frame set and whatever other parts are required to make the bike fit. And then everything else is essentially kind of leased from wheel component and accessory companies who you know at the end of the life cycle or end of you know whenever you're done with it essentially you know the companies take the stuff back after some period of time They ideally refurbish it for secondhand use and then it's resold to someone who you know wants a bargain on older stuff so the stuff just doesn't end up in a garbage box somewhere uh, you know and then the original user pays another nominal fee to get kind of new updated stuff that still fits on the original platform and it struck me as I was having this conversation, I mean, this is something that we talked about with Eric during the interview, that you know, this is basically just kind of how it used to be in the bike industry. I mean, all, all four of us here on the podcast have have built bikes up from frame sets. I mean, all of our personal bikes, I think we bought, you know, or at least you know, if we didn't buy them as bare frames, we, we built them up and changed them from bare frames. And it's just how it used to be. I mean, you used to buy a frame set first, and then you bought a bunch of compatible stuff. And almost by definition, because this is how everyone was doing it. I mean, everything had to work together. So should we just
1: be doing that again? I mean, uh, there's a difference, I guess, between sort of just building stuff from frames and the sort of like leasing model that he's talking about, which I think is... Uh, I mean, he doesn't call it leasing, but it's kind of what it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I mean, that sounds tricky, and I'm not sure that the bike industry would ever get its act together well enough to actually do anything like
2: that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but, on on Kaylee's. On Kaylee's point, there's too many stakeholders involved here for that to work, right? There's, you know, there's the retailers, there's the brands, and then a bike is not just from one manufacturer, you know, it's it's the sum of components from many, many brands here, um, and yeah, I think there's just too many fingers in the pie for this to ever work, but, you know, that business model is is basically how I've got my mobile phone at the moment. I'm basically leasing it from the, the telco company, and then they offer trade-ins or buybacks where, you know, after your, your contract runs out, they just hand you a new phone, and you give the existing phone in good working condition back to them um, so I mean it, it can work but I just I just don't see it happening in cycling
3: I mean I so here at my shop a lot of what I do is frame up builds like, and I think the biggest problem with this is that you have like let's say in theory a customer has a bike and they get a new frame and they want to transfer the parts over like basically half of the parts aren't compatible so you're yeah it doesn't really work like that it, like five years ago before things were in disk like sure but now that everything's disc and integrated and arrow, and it's just not realistic. Like there's not, the yeah. bicycle industry, as we've discussed many times, doesn't do standards. So like.
0: <laughs> yeah, because right now, I mean, it it is a very real possibility that you can have, you know, a multi-thousand dollar bicycle that you have for a decade that you absolutely love. And you could very realistically have like a seat post failure. And that could render the entire bike useless because you cannot find a replacement seat post for this bicycle because that frame is the only frame in the world that uses that seat post. I mean,
3: most companies now, like with proprietary parts and stuff, they're only keeping those parts in stock for maybe three or four years or until the parts are gone. That's not something that, let's say uh, a frame that came out and was designed and sold three years ago. Like they're still not producing all the spare parts for that. It's just like whatever was extras in the warehouse and that's when it's gone, that's it. So all the like little plastic aero covers and all of that kind of stuff, it's, yeah. Once one of those breaks or strips out or something in a few years, like your bike is essentially done.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a requirement in the EU that manufacturers have to keep replacement parts on hand for five years from when the thing is introduced. Yeah. And like on the surface, that might seem like a good number, but I mean, five years goes by in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's not and very much. You're spending, no, if you're spending, you know, $5,000 on a bike, presumably you are probably interested and you're you're invested in wanting to keep that bike around for a while and if you can't get a critical part for that thing it could be again something as little as like a cable stop or something like that then you know you are screwed i mean you know i belong to all these mechanic boards on facebook and they're constantly (laughs) posts on there from people who are looking for like
2: some random bit Yep. <laughs> and this is hardly an, a frame specific issue, right? Like it applies to group sets as well. It applies to Yeah, it's uh, kind of across you know, the board. braking systems. Yeah. So, you know, like if you if you have like a 60 I don't know, maybe 6700 Ultegra bike and you try to get chainrings for that these days, like a 10 speed Ultegra, <laughs> it's not that old and you can't get chainrings. Yeah. Um yeah, so I mean it's it's definitely an industry wide problem this.
3: I think too like talking about doing frame up builds and like maybe that's more sustainable. I think it's still like in terms of packaging, it's I would say worse because everything still comes packaged in boxes and stuff that's made to be displayed in like glass cases like shops used 30 years ago. And no one uses that. They just stick it on a shelf in the back or it's you ordered it from the distributor and it's going straight on the bike. Like they need to get rid of because you have the display box and then it folds open. And then, the, let's say the derailleur or whatever—it's in a plastic bag. Then that's wrapped in plastic, attached to another piece of cardboard. And then there's another cardboard about around that. And then it goes all in a box. And it's like so all these frame-up builds I do. Basically, the entire like the wheels and all the parts, the group set and everything. Like you fill an entire bike box full of other packaging, which seems a bit silly.
1: I'd say the leasing idea is interesting in terms of like, you know, how much would you. You have to you have to go do the math, right? We haven't done the math. Somebody could, with a business mind, go figure out exactly like what would be the monthly rate on a bike, and you basically just got to sort of trade it in whenever you wanted to and get a, get the next one. You know, if you if you, I think about Zach, all the all the people that come into the shop and already have SL sevens, right? Yeah. The bike's been out for a couple months. There's there's already piles and piles and piles of people here in Boulder that have that. And when the SL8 comes out, those people will all get the SL8. <laughs> well, these with, people all had SL6s. Yeah, so. they all had, they all had SL6s before. So, like, uh, you know, how much does Specialized charge to say, you know, you just, you just pay us X amount of dollars every the month, and whenever the new bike comes out, you get the new bike, right? Uh, it, it, these are two these are two separate conversations for sort of the, the the packaging thing and this leasing thing. But yeah, I'm just sort of there is there is a a number there that eventually would make sense right i just don't really know what it is and i don't and i'm assuming that it just doesn't make a lot of sense for the big brands to go down that pathway there's just so much to keep track of i wonder
0: yeah well i mean the the bike industry definitely i mean well sorry just to back up a little bit i mean there are obviously a lot of uh systems in place that are you know that exist in the automotive world i mean obviously like the whole leasing thing um but I mean, that industry has obviously been around for quite a while. They're very big. They're very well organized. I mean, they have all these systems, and they have the money in place to to, to implement all this stuff. And you know, one company that comes to mind, uh, you know, like Volvo, and I think can uh, and I think Cadillac is doing it now too. They're, they're introducing these business models where you basically just pay like a subscription fee. Like you don't own the car, you don't even lease the car. Really, you basically just get to use some car for some set period of time, and then that's kind of what I'm talking after about after a set period. Of- yeah. And after a set period of time, you basically just give it back and they replace it with a newer one or a different one, or you just kind of try something else. And, you know, we have here in Boulder, I mean, Specialized operates their, their they call it, they call it the experience center where, you know, the intent is that you are able to ride essentially anything that Specialized makes to try it out, see if you like it. And if you like it, you can buy it from an actual retailer because they don't actually sell anything there. But it, it dawned on me a while ago that like, say you know, you, a lot of shops have demo programs. So, you know, with the intent of selling bikes, but you know, let's say you had something like this where you, you know, you, you had someone demo a bike for 50, hundred bucks a pop or something. If you did that on a $10,000 bike, how many times would you have to ride it at a hundred bucks a pop before you actually made up that money? Like, let's say, let's say you bought a $10,000 bike. I mean, granted, this is the super high end of the market, but let's say you bought a $10,000 bike and you used it for, you know, four or five years. I mean, at that point, it's lost more than half of its value, I'd say. And in that time, realistically, yeah, I mean, this this sort of thing obviously wouldn't work for everybody. But if you had to pay 50 bucks a pop, I mean, you get to ride the bike an awful lot before you make up that money. And if you don't have to worry about maintaining it or cleaning it or anything like that, like, like you can make that financial argument at that point.
1: Yeah, if you're if you're a if you're the type of cyclist that rides. Once or twice a week, that's well it'd be fifty times at fifty per uh yeah, i mean you'd get you'd get years out of the thing, like you, you it would make more sense to rent it, but you'd have to go get it every time
0: <laughs> well yeah i mean it's it's obviously not as convenient yeah. and like it doesn't make sense for everybody, but I mean it does seem like there is the potential
2: for something like that to make sense um I feel like this doesn't help. The fundamental environmental issue though because you're still uh you're basically just accentuating consumerism um by you know providing the means for people to continually ride the latest and greatest product and then pushing the old product into the market second hand i assume but then not servicing that so but there's a um, couple
0: of different aspects here because while while ideally i mean and again like you know you know, the four of us do this already. I think we, we all own bikes that maybe are not necessarily unlike the absolute, absolute cutting edge, but they're bikes that we know work really well, that we can work on, that we can get parts for, that we can service that last a long time, that, you know, they aren't going to break down all the time. And you know, that's the sort of bike that Eric is ultimately suggesting that we should all buy. But, you know, but there is always going to be this consumer who wants, who, who insists and wants to have the latest and greatest thing. And in that situation then I feel like this sort of you know leasing or subscription model could make sense in terms of you know improving the sustainability of the product just because there would be fewer of them out there and yet the co- and yet the companies could still potentially if it's done right I guess I mean again I haven't worked out the numbers but it presumably could be made to work so that you know the companies make money these people still get to use the latest and greatest, and and then also don't have to worry about it.
1: I mean, yeah. if nothing else, we've seen the power of of a subscription model here at Cycling Tips, right? From a business perspective, cash coming in every month on the month, you know, makes forecasting and things easier. Thank you, Velo Club members. We appreciate you. But no, seriously, you know, the fact that 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 people people's memberships hit. You know CT accounts at the same time every month, and we can rely on that to pay staff and to make podcasts and things like that. You know we're a small version of of that, but it's it's a hugely powerful business model as a result.
2: Yeah, uh, just just going back to what we were originally talking about with uh, you know with recyclable packaging and stuff, and you know this bigger theme that the environment. You know packaging is great, but it's really about the the whole picture that we have to be looking at here uh and you know the the interview that you did you know suggesting that bikes you know become more durable and become you know upgradable and all that I mean that's that's where we've come from right that's that's that is where the bike industry was and that's where you know the brands like uh Bjorn uh you know that environmental sustainable brand um you know they're making frames out of recycled stainless steel uh and the frames are made you know they're heavy and they're designed to. Never fail, basically, um, and if they do fail, you can just put them into scrap metal, and they become something else again. Um, you know, there's something to be said about that versus where we are now, where we're we're building carbon bikes lighter and lighter and lighter, and you hit one curb, and the bike is beyond repair. It is now two bikes uh, or two unicycles, uh, and. Um, yeah, so I mean, they're just... One without pedals, you know, so that's hard to ride. Yeah, so <laughs> packaging is great, but I can't help but feel it's a little bit of greenwashing when you're making these borderline unreliable racing products. Yeah,
0: I mean, it is for sure, unquestionably, one very small piece of the puzzle. And, you know, like I said, I mean, Eric does point out that the ultimate solution is just buying... it is just making everyone want to instead have the absolute latest and greatest thing... To instead want things that actually are more durable. Like, you know, if I, you know, I, I guess I always like doing car analogy things, but like, you know, Kaylee, you and I, you know, we both spent extra money for Toyota vehicles that are ostensibly on paper not as good as other things that we could have purchased for less money, but we paid extra for these things for a couple of reasons. One, because they hold their value better but two, they hold their value better because they have an exceptional reputation for reliability and durability, and we were willing to pay extra for that. So it's very curious to me that, you know, that sort of attribute is something that is well-proven and well-accepted and well-known and everything in the automotive industry and, and as far as the consumer world goes, and yet it's something that, you know, certainly for electronics and now in bicycles, it's something that is certainly seems to be less valued than it used to be.
3: I mean, it seems like us, like, using us as an example and talking about our bikes, but it seems like people that have been riding bikes a long time, like gradually kind of go to that, like, I want a bike that just rides really well. And it lasts a long time. Like, like we're on titanium or aluminum bikes. Right. And it's the frame will last indefinitely. And you can like go through group sets on it and put a new group set on new wheels. And, but the like core of the bike is still super solid. And it seems like people that have ridden a long time, like all kind of eventually find that find that it seems
1: like we've gotten through our racer phase too yeah (laughs) which which helps when you're worried when you're mostly worried about going fast then you buy the lightest and the most but you've also ridden enough that. that like and like
3: we're not fast not to be like cocky or anything but we're like relatively strong and have raced a lot historically and it's like you realize that all of these little tiny little things for just going and riding having fun or doing amateur racing or whatever they don't really matter like saving saving three watts of aero efficiency like your jersey is
0: flapping in the wind like <laughs> yeah it well, doesn't like, matter like i would rather like that rides at, well and lasts a long time yeah like you look at all the old school road racers i mean you know they would be riding on these cutting edge carbon fiber things and then like you look at what they're riding when they retire and like you know they go out and buy a you know a custom peg or something like that like like that's exactly they're riding yeah. for themselves personally so I mean, again, I mean, I, I, I mentioned this before on the regular pod, but I mean, this topic of sustainability in the bike industry is one that yeah, that we definitely intend at Cycling Tips to spend a lot more time on moving forward. Um, so, I mean, we we'll definitely dive into a lot of these things in much more depth later. But stay tuned for more on this front because, as I said, I mean, it's a pretty big rabbit hole, and we're gonna just dive in headfirst. So, in the meantime, though, I think it's time to wrap things up with another round of Ask a Mechanic. Speaking of which, do it. I think it's about time we have some music for this segment. Anyway, we're going to dive in here. Velo Club member Hannon Ayer would like to know, if a customer wants to learn how to repair more of their bike themselves, is it acceptable to ask your mechanic? Given that it will eat into their profits, and if so, how do you breach the subject? And what kind of beer do you prefer?
3: I mean, I guess I would start by saying, don't do this in the summertime um, when people are busy. Do it in the off season when people are looking for things to do, and not don't just give them beer. Like, offer it to be like, how? What is your hourly rate? Can I you pay me? Like, can I pay you to work on this? Like, show me how this works, basically. Or like some some shops too in the off season, I know do like clinics. Basically, that you can book a spot and come into the shop and they teach you how to adjust a derailleur or whatever, build wheels. Like that, those are classes yeah, you can I used take to do that back in the day. Yeah. I would probably not just bring in beer and assume that they'll help you. But I, I definitely like, if you're a cyclist, I in- very much encourage you to learn how to work on your own bicycle. Like, like I work on bikes for a living and get paid when people can't fix things themselves. But like, if you're an actual cyclist, I think you should know how to, how to do basic things like fix a flat, adjust your derailleur, like adjust your headset, things that will happen inevitably at some point when you're out on a bike ride and that you should be able to adjust and figure out how to fix and be able to ride home. Like, or you're at a race in a parking lot and your race starts in 10 minutes and something went wrong. Like you should learn how to do that, whether it's, whether it's going to a shop and asking them for help or just taking it apart and seeing how things work and figuring out how to put it back together. Like definitely figure out and learn how to learn how to work on stuff.
1: Basically, what Zach is cool. saying is he's not threatened by your increased mechanical aptitude. No, I, I very much encourage <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. Another Vela Club member, Keith DiMaggio,
0: would like to know, Dave, this might be one for you. How do you keep hardened tools from marring softer fasteners? That's a Dave question. Mm.
1: Use softer tools.
0: Uh,
2: <laughs> use uh, Use tools that fit the fastener better. Yeah. It's an interface issue if you're if you're marring things. So yeah, you just want to narrow the gap in that interface. So find tools with better tolerances. And Dave, seeing as how I know, I'm not
0: joking at all, seeing as how I know for a fact that you have <laughs> measured all of your Allen keys, for example, <laughs> do you have a suggestion for Keith as far as what exactly Allen keys he should be buying so that he is not messing up his soft fasteners?
2: Uh, if he's marring stuff, then it it sort of might suggest that the uh, hex key you're using is undersized. So uh, a good, affordable oversized hex key is the Bondus Silver Guard, or if you want a Micron thicker, get the Gold Guard. Always but gold. they're actually getting... <laughs> they're thick enough. What's that? Is the Micron pure gold? It is. It <laughs> it's, is. The it's, the co- it's the gold coating that makes it more... But yeah, in my experience they're actually a little bit too thick, so you... Uh, you will come across some fasteners. If some brands have actually undersized their fasteners, then you might need a second set of hex keys to get into those. What about what about a
0: company like Weira or something that uses a kind of a more like a very very slightly star shaped pattern to their hex keys?
2: I'm going to get some very angry emails for this, but Weira actually tends to that design. I found it doesn't sh- it doesn't slip like it won't cam out of the bolt, but I have found that at a high torques it actually digs in like as if you're using like a torx key in a fastener it, it can like dig into the fastener at higher torque which is probably not what you want.
0: Meaning like you can't get the tool out of the bolt?
2: As in like it, it actually like kind of partially damages the faces of the bolt in in its effort to like not strip. Interesting. I don't know. Interesting. Uh, I know you use those Zach. You, have you found that at all? Like I, mean, that I have a bunch. of yeah. Smaller sizes. Yeah
3: I mean I don't really use the smaller sizes because they have the little plastic sheathing but I mean, yeah. if you're gonna work on bikes and don't and like if you care that much about bolts, have a few different sets yeah, of wrenches. Yeah, for sure. I guess I don't care about bolts enough.
1: Uh, I care about bolts yeah. not at all.
3: I mean, a lot of the bikes here are like <laughs> fifteen plus thousand dollar bikes with titanium and aluminum everything bolts. So try not to strip those out for people.
2: Yep. And if you want, if you just so further on that, if you want to go like real extreme, like if you're using a pedal wrench on like your titanium speed play pedals and you're you're worried about like you know causing a slight marring on the on the spindle or, or things like that uh maybe use something like a, a like the thinnest butcher's paper you can find with your tool like you can like wrap the spindle and then use a the tool I don't actually do this but I, I know people that do uh, not so,
3: for uh, yeah. speed play pedals because we have a strict no speed speedplay rule um <laughs> but like for <laughs> for anodized bottom bracket cups that thread in with the wrench flats yeah. on it if you use like a piece of the plastic film or whatever it came wrapped yeah. in, you can put that in between the bottom bracket and the tool to not yeah. mar in. Oh, that's a good. That's a good tip.
1: I'll use that. I I, I should explain our strict no speed play rule. That's just yeah, because here in Boulder, our road rides almost always involve walking around on dirt at some point because we do real dumb road rides, and speed play is not so good for that. So generally, yeah. people move into town and have speed plays, and we're like, you just need to not. Yeah, and they're shortly no longer riding
3: <laughs> speed plays.
0: Well, actually, yeah. I'm, I'm- on uh, on our ct recommends article on on road pedals i think neil uh, actually had mentioned that when he first moved to colorado he was a speed play guy and then he started so much cornering that... clearance though <laughs> yeah yeah and they're so light and they're so little and cute and there's like little yeah. lollipops but um but yeah i mean he, he i guess he he like went to use the the porta potty before a race or something and stuck his foot in a bunch of dirt and get it, him it didn't go
1: well for that pedal yeah. great pedals so. just can't walk around at them and we do stupid road rides so it's really it's an us That's problem not a speed play problem that is very mm. true, very, yeah. very
0: true. <laughs> moving on another tool question this one from adam Carr. he would like to know do you have a big brand tool preference these days such as park Unior, pedros etc or are there just particular tools that you like from each of those brands harbor freight <laughs> i would i would say like no not harbor freight for bicycle specific tools
3: whichever one fits the needs of what you're doing whether it's like a certain bottom bracket tool or a headset tool or a hub tool or like not all like Pedro's and Park and Abbey and all these companies don't make every single one of these things. So get the one that fits your needs. But then beyond that, I would say for like hex keys and screwdrivers and hammers and all of the non-bicycle specific tools, I would look outside the bicycle industry.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, But yeah, I mean, Unior and Park Tool and Pedro's, I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things, the tool quality, like if you're looking at pedal wrenches and bottom bracket tools, they're all pretty comparable these days. Um, but yeah, I'd piecemeal it. No no one brand is across the board better than the other brands, um, with the exception of maybe Abbey, but they have a very small range.
3: Yeah, definitely Abbey. Fair enough. And yeah. would be my It's very expensive, <laughs> but
2: it's very good. Very. Um,
0: Okay, moving on. Chris Stocks would like to know if we know of any hydraulic quick-release connectors for SRAM hydraulic brakes because he would like to occasionally swap between road and time trial bars and also plans to travel with his bike.
3: There, I feel like we've covered this before too. SRAM for a while. I don't know if you can still get them. they were OE. Nope.
0: Yeah, they don't. SRAM, doesn't, yeah, the SRAM does not Yeah, do an OE connector. <laughs> yeah, the connect a jig thing, but it's only for complete bikes. But number 22... Uh, They came up with their own hydraulic coupler system that they had originally planned to offer only with their complete travel bikes. But they do now offer those couplers separate. However, they are very expensive. And they're very
2: big.
3: If you're switching between road bars and TT bars, you're going to need a different brake lever and a different shifter. So there's like a whole bunch of other variables in here other than just your brake hose.
2: But yeah, and that, that, going back to what James says, that number 22 brake decoupler is actually huge. I mean, they designed it around their own frame and it's around to, their own port. It's like, it's probably yeah, what? I don't it, know. I haven't seen it. It's probably 25 mil in diameter. I don't know if it's that big, but it is it's meant to go large. inside of a frame tube, yeah. ideally. Also,
1: friends but, don't let friends ride time trial bars.
0: Oh, Kaylee, come on. Well, at least Yo, we not time trial, trial bars on their all, like, road bikes that, that they're going to travel with. not helping. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's, if you want ease of use for this like if you're traveling a lot and switching your bars a lot just put mechanical brakes on like I'm assuming he has disc brakes because of hydraulic like maybe the mechanical disc brakes aren't going to be quite as good but it's going to be so much easier to swap things back and forth like just with the inline like, or just
1: know. or just whack some like clip clip on arrow bars on if you're on a road bike with drop bars anyway you get you 98% of the way there
3: yeah, not a great solution for a odd... Yeah. I
0: actually wonder, <laughs> you know, with, uh, with the new GRX stuff, with that little mini brake lever thing that they have there, I mean, this would also certainly involve a lot more... Well, no, because no, that lever, the, you mean the
3: more one more. on the top?
0: It yeah, doesn't I mean, have the,
3: a reservoir or anything it, in it. It's just purely... A,
0: no, 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 I know. But, I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know, if he wanted to have an additional brake lever on a TT extension, I mean, in theory, it's probably something that he could physically hook up but i mean it'd be a rat's nest of hydraulic wires or hydraulic hoses and then
2: it certainly would not be easy to swap back and forth given given the question with shram i'm thinking he is on e so that solves the uh the, the 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 cabling issue but uh but yeah i mean the hoses yeah number 22 is probably the only one that comes to mind and i don't know where you'd put it hmm yeah
0: sorry chris we do not have a good solution for you Joe Brescia from Twitter would like to know, if you have a mini frame pump like a Silca Tactico, where should you mount it? In other words, for these little mini pumps that have a little bottle cage mount, I think he wants to know if you would put it on the down tube or seat tube mount. Or maybe would you put it underneath the down tube if you have that option on your bike? Or would you mount it on the drive side or non-drive side? I feel
3: like these little plastic, I would, wherever it fits on your bike, like sometimes they run into... You get interference on the down tube if it's a really big wide down tube, and if it's on the seat tube, sometimes it hits the cranks. Just kind of depends what works, but I would say those little plastic clips usually don't work that well. They tend to rattle, things come loose. I like to either put it in my pocket if I'm going to ride with the pump, or use a toe strap and hold it on your saddle with all your other good, good fat flat fixing bits. That'd yeah, be well. I agree.
2: Some some pumps are better than others. I mean, this is something that I specifically tested in my uh, my miniature mini pump test. Um I only tested... You're a very
0: big miniature pump uh, test. I only tested a very say.
2: small handful of pumps in it. Um but yeah, and that was something I tested. And of course like it goes back to what Zach was saying, which is it it there's a huge variance based on what frame you put you put it on. You know, if, if there's a large down tube, there's a high chance you're gonna get interference from the frame and the pump is going to rattle against the frame. So that's something to watch for. Uh but yeah, always non drive side if you're mounting it on the bike. Um and then yeah. I'd say look to you know, try the down tube first. If it touches the frame, try the C-tube.
0: Yeah, right. And that non-drive side thing is not for fashion purposes. It's for interference purposes. Yep. Yeah, if your so, pump slips, you don't want it going into your chainring. So Joe, go ahead and experiment with that. But basically, just try a couple of different places and see what works best. Uh, last question, then we're going to uh, wrap up for the week here. Chris Bennett and Jeff Warner would both like to know, Uh, they, they have tubeless related questions here and they want to know what, what's the consensus on hibernating mostly summer tubeless wheels for the winter. Do you take the tires off and remove all the sealant or is there some other protocol and how do pro teams handle all this?
3: I mean, I would say an ideal scenario, you would take the tire off and you would suck all the sealant out and then store it dry. But I'd be willing to bet from the mini tubeless tires that I see your sealant is already dry (laughs) (laughs) and it will be fine. Just sitting as is.
1: (laughs) That is probably very true. Yeah. You just want to time it for the end of the season. So if you know that, you know, December 1st is the day that these wheels and tires are going away. The last time you put sealant in is like what middle of October, beginning of October,
3: But I think also, like, it depends what you want to deal with, right? Like, because let's say you have sealant in your tire and you want to get it all out so you can store it. Come springtime, you're going to have to put, do it all again and put sealant in. So like worst case scenario, if you set your tire, your wheels aside with sealant for the winter, like the worst case, so you have a pool of dried sealant at the bottom of your tire. And then like, if you just let it do that and in the springtime, then you only have to take the tire on and off once and like peel out the dried bit and then put sealant in right it's not like a, a tubular or something with latex tube where the the dried sealant's going to kind of tear it in half
2: yeah and as long as you're not running like dehumidifiers or something like that through your winter i mean the sealant most sealants will probably last like six months untouched through, yeah through winter anyway i mean it's more like in hot conditions under use that they they only last two to three months so um you know you might just be able to let it pull in the bottom and not harden
3: yeah i mean on my Not my road bike because that has tubes. Because team tube inside, but my mountain bike (laughs) and my my mountain bikes and my gravel bike that have tubeless, I just let it sit for the winter and then deal with it in the
0: spring. Yep. Team tube inside. Yeah. Team tube inside. All right. With that, first of all, I guess yeah, we we never did get team tube inside t-shirts made up, did we, Andy? Andy, can you help us out with that, please? Andy, we really do need team tube inside and team tubeless stickers. Or team team tube inside and team tubeless t-shirts and maybe we should just you know conduct an informal vote or poll to see how many more
2: of these shirts get bought
3: i mean it seems like a fun t-shirt yeah i would wear maybe it It'd be a fun
2: t-shirt is there like a I feel like the ones defending old technology are going to be the ones that buy the t-shirt but anyway um
3: Can, is it like yeah, going to be like in, in, in time five time years I'm on? I'm on. In five years, is it going to be like the diehard campy people that get the tattoo? Like, like I still run inner tubes, so I'm going to get this tattoo on my calf. 100%. <laughs> that weird black
1: snake you've got tattooed on your arm? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of the barbed wire around your you should have an inner tube. <laughs> Butyl, baby. James's card is full. The yep. end. There's a, so James, at some point, disappeared in the last couple minutes. We don't know when. We don't know exactly. But... He's fine.
2: he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's he just he's absolutely fine. It's just, it's just the technology that's failed. Him. Thanks
1: to everybody for listening to today's episode. We'll be back two weeks from now. James says bye. James says bye.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs>